Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 49, Travel Chaos. This week, for my book recommendation, I thought I'd go for a book about Robin Hood, since the guy gets a recommendation this week. So the one I've gone for is the incredibly appropriately titled Robin Hood by J.C. Holt. Professor Holt is a historian you can trust, and this is a definitive book on the subject, and at less than 300 pages isn't too long. This week we're going to talk about Richard's travel problems and what's been going on back at the mouse hole in England while the cat's been away. When Philip of France left the Holy Land, he left without any regret at leaving the man whose bed he'd once shared in his youth. As far as he was concerned, everything had gone wrong for him and there was only one man to blame, Richard. Now Philip may have been a thoroughly unpleasant man, but he was to be as successful as he was unpleasant. As far as he was concerned, now was a good time to get stuck into Richard. While Richard was away, here was one mouse that was looking to play. The eensy-teensy fly in the ointment, though, was that he'd had to swear not to harm any of Richard's interests. And there was the small matter of the defence that the church offered the crusader. Richard, in the eyes of the church, was sacrosanct. So, Philip popped in to see the Pope Celestine III, and basically asked for permission to give Richard a kicking. Celestine, Celestine, blubbed Philip. Richard forced me out of the Holy Land, and was betraying us to the enemy, talking to Saladin and his brother Adil. Celestine was unmoved. Touch Richard's lands, and Philip would be excommunicated. Nothing daunted, Philip and his supporters embarked on a whispering campaign to ruin Richard's reputation. Well, actually less of a whispering campaign and more of a shouting campaign. Richard, they said, had shamelessly hob and indeed nobbed with the Saracen. He had engaged the assassins to get rid of Conrad. He'd poisoned the Duke of Burgundy. As Philip moved north, he travelled home through the lands of Henry VI, the Holy Roman Emperor. 
and it seems quite possible that they met secretly and hatched a plan. Because, extraordinary as it seems, Richard was not at all popular in many royal and aristocratic circles. Let's have a quick review of people angry about Richard. Number one, the Holy Roman Emperor. Richard had maintained a friendly relationship with a man called Henry the Lion, Duke of Saxony, who was the enemy of Henry VI and his father, Barbarossa. Plus, he'd supported Tancred in Sicily, Henry's enemy in Sicily. So Henry VI wasn't a fan. Number two, Leopold of Austria, whose banner had been thrown off the walls of Acre by Richard. He was just itching to get his hands on Richard and a spot of revenge for that humiliation. Number three, the Count of Toulouse had been fighting against Richard as Duke of Aquitaine for years. So he didn't like him either. Now Richard wasn't an idiot, so obviously knew about all of this, and of course he'd avoid any chance of falling into those guys' power. So he did what any sensible monarch would do. He dressed up in a rubbish disguise and wandered across Austrian Germany. To be honest, of course, it wasn't quite as simple as that. He'd planned to go back the way he'd come, by Sicily and Marseille. But then he heard that the Count of Toulouse was planning an ambush in his honour, so he diverted up the Adriatic, presumably planning to go through northern Italy and up the Rhineland, which was owned by someone who didn't hate him. It was now late in the year, and he didn't dare to try and sail home by the Atlantic. Unfortunately, Richard was now shipwrecked in northeastern Italy. The local ruler there, it turns out was a nephew of Conrad of Montferrat. How lucky was that? And of course, as you'll remember, Richard was accused of having assassinated Conrad, so you guessed it. The local ruler didn't like Richard either. Richard now had just three companions and tried to slip back through Italy and southern Germany to reach the Rhineland described as pilgrims. Unfortunately, Richard's many talents did not include going around unnoticed, and his habit of chucking the money around attracted attention. So, Richard left two of his fellows to draw all the attention, and he rode hard with his remaining chum. But it was no good. They were discovered in a small village near Vienna. Duke Leopold sent Richard to a castle high up on a rocky hillside in the Danube town of Dernstein, which is where we get the story of Blondel the Minstrel. The story goes that no one knew where Richard was being held. Blondel himself may well have been a man called Blondel de Nel, who in later years would fight in the Fourth and Albigensian Crusade. Or it could have been his father, Jean de Nel, who was actually on the Third Crusade with Richard. Or truth to say, it could have been some other bloke entirely. Anyway, the story goes that Blondel travelled from castle to castle, singing the first verse of a song that only he and Richard knew. And then, eventually outside Dernstein, he at last heard the second verse sung from Richard's voice. All very romantic, I hate to be a party pooper, but the story is almost certainly a complete fiction, given that the capture of the King of England was done quite remarkably openly. Basically, everyone knew where he was, because everybody was celebrating the thing. So when he was captured, there is a quite astonishing letter from Henry VI to King Philip of France. Here is the closing sentence of that letter. Our dearly beloved cousin, Leopold, Duke of Austria, captured the king in a disreputable house near Vienna. He is now in our power. We know this news will bring you great happiness. It's in every way extraordinary, isn't it? 
I mean, let's imagine Nicolas Sarkozy writing to Angela Merkel to say, look, we've picked up David Cameron on the cross-channel ferry and have taken him off to a secret location until Britain joins the euro. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Anyway, by February 1193, Henry VI, the emperor, had persuaded Duke Leopold to transfer Richard to his custody, basically by agreeing to share the enormous amount of money they expected to make by selling him. Philip of France, meanwhile, was desperate to get his grubby little hands on him, and Lord knows what would have happened if he had done. Meanwhile, the diplomatic wires were humming. Richard was a returning crusader. His person was supposed to be sacrosanct. As soon as she heard, his mum, Eleanor of Aquitaine, started hammering away at Pope Celestine. You can get the full text of all these letters, by the way, on a fascinating website called Epistoli, which has over 1,200 letters to and from medieval women. I've put the URL on this week's post. But anyway, I thought I'd read a part of one of those letters out, just for fun. In her later years, Eleanor does become the kind of statesman that I guess she probably always wanted to have the chance to be. But it also has to be said that she's not given to understatement or a simple message. Anyway, here we go. I am wasted away by sorrow. My bone clings to the consumed flesh of my skin. My years decline in size. Would that they might give out altogether that the blood of my already dead body, the brain in my head, the marrow of my bones might dissolve in tears, that I might completely vanish in weeping. My entrails are torn from me. I have lost the staff of my old age and the light of my eyes. Pitiful and pitied by no one, why have I come to the ignominy of this detestable old age, who was ruler of two kingdoms, mother of two kings? My guts are torn from me, my family is carried off and removed from me. The young king and the Count of Brittany sleep in dust, and their most unhappy mother is compelled to be irremediably tormented by the memory of the dead. Two sons remain to my solace, who today survive to punish me, miserable and condemned. King Richard is held in chains. His brother John depletes his kingdom with iron and lays it waste with fire. In all things, the Lord has turned cruel to me and attacked me with the harshness of his hand. Truly his wrath battles against me. My sons fight amongst themselves. If it is a fight where one is constrained in chains, the other, adding sorrow to sorrow, undertakes to usurp the kingdom of the exile by cruel tyranny. Now, I'm sure you'll have picked up the reference there to travel back home. The depletes his kingdom with iron thing. So, let's leave Richard in chains for a while and have a look at what's been going on back home. The first thing to note is that Richard is heavily criticised by his critics for leaving the kingdom and allowing chaos to ensue. And this is far from being fair. So the first point is that if Richard hadn't been illegally taken captive, the system he had left at home will have coped with the stresses and strains perfectly well, and he'd have come back to a kingdom unaffected by major change. Not that there wasn't trouble, of course. As you know, Richard had left William Longshaw in charge while he was away, and had made sure that in some ways William was even more powerful than a king. He was given leave to represent the king while he was away. Richard bought him the position of papal legate from the Pope for 3,000 quid, so he combined temporal and spiritual power. William was Chief Justicia, Bishop of Ely, Papal Legate and Holder of the Tower of London. 
The trouble was that in this, Richard had not necessarily picked the right man for the job. William was another interesting example of the kind of social mobility becoming possible at the time. He was the son of a minor Norman knight and was even, shock horror, accused of being a peasant, which was a bad thing, believe me. But William's father rose through service to Henry II and married into the Lacey family. William himself entered public service through Geoffrey, Henry's illegitimate son, and then worked for Richard in Aquitaine and became Richard's right-hand man. William was a man of ability and self-confidence. He also, like Richard, lacked knowledge of England, was high-handed and arrogant, and was a parvenu who aroused prejudice. Plus, he was stepping into a whirlpool of jealousy and politics that would have troubled any man on the planet. Richard didn't help, it had to be said, by making Arthur his heir. It made it quite clear to John that if he wanted to be king, he'd have to make it happen. Of course, if it was me and I'd been given vast tracts of land and as much wealth as I could handle, I'd have settled down to a relaxed life of history podcasting, but this wasn't for John, and he hopped off to England. In 1191, he started to build his power base against William, and hooked up with Hugh of Nonant, the Bishop of Coventry, and Gerard, the Sheriff of Lincoln. The qualities of John's associates rather reflect on the quality of the man himself. Hugh of Nonant, for example, was an unprincipled politician who recited a list of sins on his deathbed so long that no one could be found to absolve him. Longchamp was well aware and acted against Gerard of Lincoln very quickly, taking Lincoln Castle off him at the head of an army, and dealt also with other nobles he felt were threatening his authority. But John ordered him to stop, and was beginning to look a lot more like the throne's representative than was Longchamp. The complaints about Longchamp reached Richard before he left Sicily so he put a backup plan in place in the form of a man called Walter of Coutances, an Englishman. Walter was given the commission to replace Longchamp if things got out of hand. Which, of course, they duly did, in a pretty little episode. So hopefully you remember Geoffrey, Henry's bastard son who had stuck by his father when he died and been made Archbishop of York. Well, it had taken three years to get the position confirmed by the Pope. But now that it was so confirmed... He wanted to come back to England, but had been banned from entering the country while Richard was away. Geoffrey was so desperate to get on with his new job that he just ignored this and came over anyway. Longchamp demonstrated the most impressive of gentle, sensitive diplomacy. He had Geoffrey arrested as he landed at Dover. But then, Geoffrey managed to escape his guards and take refuge in the Priory, where he really had a right to be safe. But not a bit of it. William had him seized and dragged out of the priory, head banging on the stones as he went. It gave John and Hugh Nonant just the excuse they needed. They invoked memories of Thomas Beckett. John gathered his forces, and although Longchamp put Geoffrey back in his priory and tried to raise London, in his defence he was summoned to a trial by John in October 1191. The Longchamp didn't dare to go, and the trial turned into a kind of upper-class revolution. Bishops and earls all decided that Longchamp had to go. John was beginning to dribble with excitement, seeing his chance to become the head of government. But then Walter of Coutan stepped forward. He had a second letter from Richard, telling William the Marshal and the Barons to work with Walter. So together it was this council that ordered Longchamp to be excommunicated and decided that his place should be taken by Walter, leading a council of the realm. Longchamp ran for it. Here's a description of what happened by Hugh Nolland, which gives a pretty graphic 
description of poor old Longchamp's troubles, and on the way gives you a pretty good impression of Nollant in the process. Pretending to be a woman, a sex he'd always hated, he changed his priest's robes into a harlot's dress. The shame of it! The man became a woman, the bishop a buffoon. Dressed in a green gown of enormous length, he limped, for the poor fellow was lame, from the castle heights to the seashore, and then sat down to rest on a rock. There he attracted the attention of a fisherman who was wet and cold from the sea and thought the bishop was the sort of woman who might warm him up. He put his left arm round Longchamp's neck while his right hand roamed lower. Suddenly, pulling up the skirts, he plunged unblushingly in, only to be confronted with the irrefutable evidence that the woman was a man. The fisherman then called his mates over to have a look at this truly remarkable creature. As style goes, it's not bad, is it? Certainly a lot more direct than the average medieval prose. John, meanwhile, was most disappointed by the way things had turned out, and his eyes turned towards France. Philip was now home from Outremer, and boasting that he was going to devastate Richard's lands. He met Richard Seneschal of Normandy, and produced a forged copy of the Treaty of Messina, which claimed that Richard had recognised the Vexa as Alice's dower and should therefore be handed over to Philip. The Seneschal wasn't an idiot and refused to hand anything over. So Philip turned to John and invited him over, intending him to offer him Alice and make him lord of all the Angevin lands in France. And at the same time he called in his own barons to start an invasion of Normandy. But the result of all this intriguing was precisely Zip. John was caught by his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and by Walter of Coutans, just as he was about to leave, and told in no uncertain terms to go nowhere near Philip. John sulkily said, OK, Mum, and slunk back home. Philip's barons refused to attack the lands of a crusader. There are a few points we might make about all of this kerfuffle. One is to point out what a treacherous tick John is already proving to be, and watch this space. Another is that Richard's system survived the stresses and strains perfectly well up to the point when he was taken captive. And the other point might be that there's an interesting comparison to be made of the later rebellion against John. OK, it's stretching it a bit, but there are a few echoes. So, a servant of the crown was forced to make way for another. John himself, in his argument against Longchamp, had used the phrase communitas angliae, the community of the English, and this new concept that creeps into the Magna Carta. There had been established a council of the realm, designed to rule the country in the absence of a competent ruler, and the actions from England's government that follow are in the name of that council, rather than in the name of Walter as a justiciar. Now obviously, the differences are far more significant than the similarities, basically because everyone supported the king and rigorously followed all the legal forms. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. But in January 1193, the news of Richard's captivity reached home, and the balance swung in Philip's favour. Barons now couldn't be sure when Richard would be released, or even if he would ever be released. John started dribbling again, and by mid-January he was over in Paris with Philip 
before Mother could get in the way. John's craven behaviour towards Philip was to earn him the contempt of his brother, the English, and indeed of Philip himself, and it didn't start well. At Paris, John did homage to Philip for Normandy and all Richard's other lands, including England. And remember, a Duke of Normandy hasn't done homage to the French king for absolutely ages. He promised to marry poor Alice. Lord knows what she thought of being passed on to yet another Angevin. And Lord knows what John's existing wife would have thought about the idea if it had happened. John would then give the much-coveted Vexin to Philip. John returned to England and raised the standard of rebellion and claimed the kingdom, claiming that Richard was dead, while Philip started to put an invasion fleet together. But we seem at the moment still to be in damp squib territory. John, for example, could get no help at all from William the Lion of Scotland, and Richard's decision to deal generously with him now bore fruit. Nonetheless, John had vast lands and was himself a threat. Eleanor is now at the centre of affairs. She and Walter fortified and readied the southeast coast, and they called a meeting of the Great Council. The Council dispatched two envoys to Richard, and in March 1193 they met with him and brought Richard news of home. They appeared to find Richard in good spirits, and able to take the whole your empire's in meltdown, your brother's betrayed you thing quite well. He remained cheerful and affable throughout the meeting, and seemed unworried about his brother. My brother John, he said, is not the man to win lands by force if there's anyone at all to stop him. Which, by way of casual contempt, is difficult to beat. Indeed, throughout the captivity, Richard seems to have kept his cool. At one stage, for example, Henry VI staged a show trial to try and justify his actions, which rather backfired when Richard talked the whole court round to his point of view. The basic shape of the hostage deal was pretty much already formed, though. Namely, 100,000 marks, a king's ransom, more than two years' royal revenue, and maybe something like £2 billion in today's money. Richard sent ideas to Eleanor and the justiciers on how to raise the cash, and also incidentally raised Hubert Walter to the Archbishopric of Canterbury, a man we'll hear more about later. Eleanor and Walter then got on with it, levying a 25% tax on income and on movable property, trying and failing to take the year's war crop from the Cistercians and raiding the nation's churches for gold and silver plate. Philip and John's invasion concentrated on three theatres, in England, Normandy and Aquitaine. In England, John got precisely nowhere, bottled up in his castles and forced to make a truce. In Aquitaine, the story was similar. Richard's officials stood firm and beat back the assault. But in Normandy, Philip made real inroads. The key fortress of Gisors in the Vexin was surrendered by treachery. The lords of Omar and Eu, the counts of Merlin and Perche, all defected. As it happens, these men were the same people who had revolted against Henry II in 1173-4, and it illustrates a point. They were all marcher lords. They held land on either side of the Norman border. It meant that they had to make the right choice and could rarely afford loyalty to one lord alone. But the loss of Gisors in particular was a killer and Philip was on a high. He marched onto the gates of Rouen looking to seal his success by taking the capital. What he found there irritated and surprised him. The gates were open and he was invited to enter at any time but he knew this was a trap. The defenders were relaxed and confident. 
So he soon burned his siege engines in a fit of pique and marched off. Despite this, Philip made more conquests, the castle of Ivry and Passy. It was a good time for Philip. And then in June 1193, Henry VI finally seemed to make a decision, and the full arrangements for Richard's payment was made. Philip clearly expected an early release, and this is when he sent his famous note to John saying, Look to yourself, the devil is loose. Actually, he was being a bit previous. Now, presumably while all of this was going on, Kevin Costner was hanging out in Sherwood Forest. Or was it Errol Flynn in Sherwood? Or maybe Russell Crowe in Barnsdale? The myth of Robin Hood is evergreen, and I thought worth just a quick digression. One of the first things that struck me was that there's nothing about Robin Hood in any of the books I've been using to write this podcast, which kind of suggests that maybe Robin Hood has been retrofitted to the reign of Richard. Because the first time we hear about the ballad is in a throwaway reference in Piers Plowman from 1377 by William Langland. The first actual manuscript is a ballad called Robin and the Monk from 1450. By 1600, he's a hit, but we can't be sure that anyone was listening to any of the rhymes about him in the 1190s. However, there are loads of references from the 1220s onwards from justice rolls to names that look awfully like Robin Hood, so it is entirely possible that it's just that the tales weren't written down at the time or until later, and that the manuscripts themselves haven't survived. Basically, people who have studied this have gone for a range of centuries. Yes, some of them have gone for Richard's reign, but also they've gone for the 13th and 14th century. So in one of the ballads, there's a reference to a good King Edward, that people think may have been Edward III. Interestingly, in the films, while Errol of the 1930s accepts King Richard's pardon, in the early tales, Robin accepts King Edward's pardon, and then gets bored and goes back to being an outlaw. The earliest rhymes show a very different Robin Hood to the one we know today. Firstly, they're much more violent. So in one of them, Robin cuts off Guy of Gisborne's head and sticks it on his bow. I'm not sure this would have gone down well with either Errol or Kevin, but it reflected the reality much more closely of what outlaws actually were at the time, whenever that time was. Secondly, there's no hint of this rob from the rich, give to the poor thing though there is something of a sense of social justice. Robin's target appears to be corrupt medieval officials. He tells Little John not to go after the yeomen or farmers or knights, go after the bishops, the archbishops and the sheriffs. And thirdly, Robin is a yeoman, i.e. a man of the middling sort, definitely not a deposed nobleman called Robin of Loxley. Robin's social elevation comes from the 16th century. The big question is whether or not Robin Hood is a historical figure or just one of literature and legend. And I have no doubt there are passionate believers of both, but nothing certain seems to have ever been proved. Some of the figures we know and love are in the early rhymes. So Little John is always there and it's obviously a mainstay of the story. And Will Scarlet is there from the beginning. But there's no Tuck or Maid Marian. These two seem to enter from the games played in the 15th century. Robin is a skilled archer just like the later tales, though his archery isn't necessarily part of his fighting where he uses a sword and the bow was more used for hunting and sport. And finally, even the Sherwood Forest thing isn't clear. There are many references to Barnsdale, a much smaller forest further north in South Yorkshire. 
After all this, what strikes you is that the tales have changed and adapted to different times and gathered new ideas. So in 1795, a collection of poems added a fight against Norman tyranny. And in the 19th century, he also acquires this reputation of a fighter for the poor against the rich. So basically, Robin Hood, it seems to me, is exactly what you want to make of him. So Ridley Scott and Russell Crowe's latest attempt, despite Russell's appalling inability to stick to one accent, is part of an honoured tradition. Anyway, back to the history. And we ought to get Richard home. So in June 1193, Philip was having considerable success in Normandy. Although Richard was still incarcerated, he was in constant touch and involved in as much diplomacy as he could to repair the damage. Philip's view that Richard would soon be released allowed him to agree a truce in July 1193 that was hardly a triumph for Richard, but at least put Philip's advances on hold. But by December 1193, enough of the ransom had been collected that Henry VI could set a date for Richard's release, the January 1194. John panicked and completely lost his head. He made a treaty with Philip that gave away all of Normandy east of the Seine, and further key castles elsewhere in Normandy. He recognised the claims for independence of the Count of Angoulême in Aquitaine. He gave away all the key fortresses of the Touraine that were essential to the defence of the empire. John simply wanted power, and would do anything in his power to get it. Both Philip and Richard by now, if they hadn't before, despised John and viewed him with nothing but contempt. And this would be particularly relevant after Richard's death, and John is trying to rule. Philip straight away used the treaty to take further advantage, and he made another series of gains. He captured Evreux and the key fortresses of Vaudreuil and Neubourg. He threatened Rouen again, but failed to take it, and then went south to take the homage of two more of Richard's Aquitanian vassals. But by the 4th of February 1194, Richard was finally released and landed in England on the 13th of March at Sandwich. He was greeted with great joy and enthusiasm, despite the massive cost of his absence. John, of course, was in absolute agony. His gamble had categorically failed. His castles were besieged. He had made no inroads whatsoever. If he fled to Philip now, he'd have a fraction of the lands he'd had under Richard. But if he stayed, what would Richard do to him? When Richard arrived home, John only had two castles still in his control. Tickhill then surrendered. Nottingham, interestingly enough, was the last and took some time to surrender to Richard, even when he appeared in person. The council then met and one of its actions was to bring legal proceedings against the rebels, including John and Hugh of Nolan. We're still in the period of relative mercy towards rebellion, however. Hugh was to be restored to royal favour for 5,000 marks. John had fled to Normandy, where he waited, no doubt, chewing his fingers and wondering what on earth he was going to do now which is where we'll leave him, and indeed all of them for a moment. Next week, we'll look at how Richard measured up to the challenge against Philip and the defence of the Angevin realm. So thanks as ever for listening. My particular thanks to Jeff for your donations. Very generous of you. And do keep the comments coming on Facebook, iTunes and the website. So good luck all, and have a great week. on a budget we still deserve nice things 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 